Good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name's Rob. I'm a member of the congregation. Um, before we start, shall we pray? Um, so, Father, I just pray that as we look at your word today and this morning, that you would speak to each of us, that by your Holy Spirit, you might inspire us as we need to be inspired. Amen. So, I want you to think about what was the best party that you have ever been to? For me, I think it was my wedding, and I realize I have to say that, Jess is sitting just over there, but it, it really and truly was. We got married in Jess's hometown, that's Detroit over in America, so we had lots of friends and family that had to fly over there, and we all got to stay together for about a week just beforehand, sharing really good time, sharing food. And then at the end of that, we got to have the wedding itself, the ceremony where we committed ourselves to each other. It was absolutely amazing, it was incredible. I think each of us here have got a similar sort of a memory, whether it's a wedding, a birthday party, perhaps this year's Christmas blowout at work is just going to be up there. Something that you're going to really remember, even if it was just a small gathering maybe, something close and intimate. That time that we remember that we think is never, ever going to be surpassed. And what we're going to see though as we look at this story of another party Something that would have appeared to most of the people there, just an ordinary wedding, is something completely extraordinary. And that's the, just a glimpse of the promise that God is giving his people, that he's going to fulfill through his son, Jesus Christ. A promise of a time of abundance, of love, of fellowship with him. A time that is going to indeed surpass anything that we have known before. And we see that right at the end of the reading that we had this morning. John tells us exactly what we should see in this reading. Have a look at verse 11 at the end. It says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. Jesus is going to show us through what we see here, just a glimpse of what his glory is going to look like. And why did he choose to do it at a wedding feast? See, when God spoke through Isaiah, he likened heaven to a feast on a mountain. We should have the Isaiah reading. There it is. Um, so it says that on the mountain of the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. So this is a story that is designed to reveal something about what following Jesus might actually mean, what it might look like today, and indeed what we're told it's going to look like in the future. And so this morning, we're going to look at just two of the characters that we meet in this story. And through them, we're going to see what trusting in this truth could actually mean. First, we're going to meet Mary, the mother of Jesus, and we're going to see her trust absolutely in what Jesus is going to do. And we're also going to meet the servants who step out. They take a risk. And in humble obedience to Jesus' commands, they get to witness something truly miraculous. They get to see a picture of Jesus' glory. So let's start with Mary. Have a look with me at the start of our passage. Um, I've got a newer version of the NIV, which I noticed was slightly different in the words to the ones that we use um, 
um, at church, so sorry about that, it's a slight difference. Um, but please have a look at, so verse one on chapter two. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So far, nothing too surprising. Both Mary and Jesus have been invited to a wedding. Jesus was, after all, Mary's son. It's not unlikely that they'd be invited to the same wedding. It's probably the wedding of a, a family friend. And in these times, it was indeed very normal just to invite everyone, close friends, um, close family, distant family, that slightly odd chap from around the corner. You would invite everybody. And it was the bridegroom's responsibility to cater for them. The closest family members would be the first to arrive, but as the celebrations went on, sometimes for up to a week, the invitation would be extended wider and wider and wider. It would be a bit like if at Christmas, after you've come to church and you've gone home, you've had your family Christmas, you've done presents, you've, you've eaten as much food as you can stuff down yourself, you've spent the best times you can with your family, and after that, after that expense, that energy, all of that time, you then have to immediately nip next door and go and ask the Joneses around, and then go over the street and ask me, says, what's his name, uh, to come over and join you. And you just keep that celebration going. It's not a small responsibility here. And if you couldn't match up to that, it wouldn't reflect well on you. I mean, if you couldn't meet your responsibility for society, how could you be expected to provide for your new bride? So when the wine runs out, and the bridegroom is going to be in trouble, and if he's going to be spared that shame, something must be done. And Mary, um, for whatever reasons, as we said, maybe they are close family friends, we don't know, decides to turn to Jesus. And she says, they have no more wine. No, she's not actually asking him to do anything specific here. She's just stating the problem and expecting him to do something about it. I mean, it's an age-old technique used by mothers. They never actually tell you to tidy your room. They just walk into your room and say, bit of a mess in here, and leave, expecting you to tidy it up. Um, but there's something very different, though, about Mary's request. It's not just the request of a mother. You see, over the last few weeks, we've come to meet a lot of characters as they get to know who Jesus is, as they've come to know what he represents. But Mary, Mary knew all along. See, about 30 years before this story, um, and spoiler alert, if you're going to any carol service, you're probably going to come across the reading we're about to have a look at. Um, but in Luke, 30 years ago, an angel appeared to Mary. And Mary, quite understandably, was a little taken aback, but it says... The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and will give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. You see, Mary knows exactly who Jesus is. So when she asks him to do something, she does so trusting that he's actually going to do something. 
I mean, there is a lot of debate over Jesus' response here. But I think it's important to note here that it's, it's not a refusal to act. I think it's probably more a reminder of the promise that we just heard the angel give to Mary, that something very, very big is coming. He says, my time has not yet come. There is something bigger on the horizon. And that what Jesus is about to do is going to be just a glimpse of that. And Mary clearly doesn't take it as a refusal either. She asks then the servants, she then asks the servants, just do whatever he tells you. She'd have looked a bit silly if she'd said to the servants, do whatever he tells you, and then he just went, well, I told you I wasn't going to do anything. Mary clearly takes this, that he is going to do something. Mary trusted Jesus, the son of the Most High. She had faith in what he would do. And when you ask Jesus today, when you pray, and perhaps tell him what's on your mind, Are you able to do that with the same faith? Are you able and do you trust in what Jesus is going to do? And indeed, with our 21st century eyes, what we know he already has done. Do you pray knowing that even though it might not quite be going according to plan right now, it is ultimately going to go according to God's plan? That Jesus is going to reign forever that his kingdom is going to have no end. And do you know that sometimes, here and now, we get to see a little bit of his kingdom around us? How do we do that? Well, to see that, I think we need to meet the servants. So we're going to first see the servants in verse 5, if you want to follow along and have a look. Um, His mother says to the servants, that's where it goes, so this is from verse, verse 6, isn't it? Um, no, verse 5, sorry. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then it goes on to say, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Just take a moment to think about what these servants have been asked to do. They have been running around for days now, preparing for the wedding, then serving these guests, serving them food, serving them wine, then having to tell them why they can't serve them any more wine. They are going to be absolutely run off their feet. And now they're asked to fill six stone jars to the brim with water. And imagine what that's really going to involve. There's no running water. They can't just plug a hose in, turn the tap on, and and let it go. They've got to go to the well. They've got to draw up buckets of water. They've got to heave them through the crowd, up over the brim of these jars. They've got to tip them into the jars. Imagine when you wanted to have a bath at home. That's how you had to fill your bath. Okay, how long would it take you just to fill one bathtub? Then imagine having to do that three more times. We need four bathtubs worth of water to fill these six stone jars. That is a lot of work that they are being asked to do. Yet, what do the servants do? They do. They go. They get the water, and they fill up the jars. Jars that were a symbol of how humanity was still separate from God. How humanity was sinful. These were jars that were used for ceremonial washing, used as part of the process of making yourself clean before God. They weren't to be misused. 
And not that you'd really want to, but they definitely weren't to be drunk from. But what are they asked to do next? Verse 8. Jesus tells them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. So, they've been told to fill up the jars and then serve some of this washing water to the master of the feast. What would you have done if that had been you? I mean, we're not actually told how the miracle actually happened. We don't know whether the wine just instantly transformed in these great big jars, and the servants may have figured out straight away what was going on. Perhaps the servants watched wide eyes as they reached in, scooped out some water, but then poured wine into a cup. Or maybe as they were sort of trying to get through the bustle of the crowd and they were sort of carrying the cup, not really focusing on the contents, just making sure they didn't spill anything, they then handed over a cup of wine. The only thing that we can be really sure about is that the water did indeed become wine. And not just any wine, but the very best wine. And see, and it turns out, actually I did a little bit of research, that Galilee does in fact have, still have quite a vibrant wine industry. So I thought I'd have a look at what the best wine from Galilee would be today. And according to Vivino, it's this one. Uh, it's the uh, Gamla Cabernet Sauvignon. It gets 4.1 stars out of 5. Uh, that's from 966 rating, so we've got to assume that's a pretty decent wine. And that's going to be £16 per bottle if you wanted to pick yourself up one of those. So we've got six jars of this stuff. That's 120 litres, okay, or about 960 bottles worth of wine. What's just happened here is not small. So at 16 pounds a bottle, that's going to be close to, sorry, I should have put an approximate sign there. The physics teacher in me is a little upset about that equal sign. It's going to be approximately 16,000 pounds worth of wine. And I went on, Majestic has a wedding wine drinks calculator. So I went on there, and to drink that many bottles of wine, you would need 2,090 guests. Um, I don't know how much you're guests drink at weddings, but this is what uh, majestic working. So not only Jesus has Jesus provided the very finest, the very best wine, and from vessels that symbolized humanity's sin, but he has provided it in absolute abundance. This is significantly more wine than they could ever possibly need. And if that isn't reason enough to stop and wonder. Read on into verse 9. This is telling us about the master of the feast when he drinks this wine. It says, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Who has Jesus chosen to reveal this incredible miracle to? He hasn't revealed it to the bridegroom or the bride or to the master of the feast. He's not stopped proceedings, jumped up on the table and said, no wine, not a problem, I've got this, have a look at me. No, he's revealed it, this amazing truth to the most humble people there. He's revealed it to the servants, the people that have stepped out and obediently followed his instructions, whatever happens, not looking for praise, not looking for glory, but finding that glory in humble obedience. I mean, when you think about it, when we read this story, 
Jesus didn't even touch the water. And today, as servants of Jesus, by just stepping out in that humble obedience, we can witness some of that amazing glory, his miraculous power that we will see in the future in his kingdom. We can see a little bit of it today. I mean, that might be something as simple as just signing up to go out and deliver some of the flies for our Christmas services. Or perhaps signing up at the list at the back to help out and serve. Or just finding any rotor at church that needs a few more names on it. I first got involved in some of the youth work here at Christchurch um, about four years ago at CY. Um, Jess, my wife, was already serving there. Um, but it looked like there were so few leaders that they may actually have to stop running CY. But over the past four years, by being obedient, by being humble, by praying with so many other people and serving alongside so many amazing Christians, we have seen CY, after it had dipped down to one, grow to be the base of 40, of 40 people, where we've been able to take them away on base camp. We've been able to share the gospel with people that might not be able to hear it. We've been able to see some of God's kingdom right here in Christchurch on Friday evenings. Just stepping out in obedience, we get to see God use us in the most amazing ways. But perhaps maybe serving at church isn't where you're called. Maybe you're called just to stand out as being different at work or, or in your neighborhood or, or in the building you live in. Not getting involved in gossip and wherever possible, putting others first. Maybe it's more radical still and you're called to give up something so that you can be closer to God, or so that you can be more useful to others in need, wherever that might be in the world. Whatever it is, if we trust, as Mary did, in what Jesus can and will do, if we step out in faith and obedience to him, and maybe, like the servants at the feast, we'll get to see a little bit of his glory here and now. Even if we don't get to see it, though, we can still hold firm in the truth of what is coming. In God's promises fulfilled, in Jesus' death, resurrection, and resulting in his never-ending kingdom. The master of the feast, after all, didn't witness the miracle, but he was still a part of it. So as we go from here today, can I really encourage you to take some time and to pray and to think, where can you step out in obedience to Jesus with faith that through you and through his power, something incredible is going to happen?